Um, I'm excited we get to jump into our, our series on the book of Philippians again today. But before we do that, let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we ask as we study your word, as we, as we pick it apart, as we try to understand, as we try to apply it to our lives, we just ask that you would be with us in this process. You would be with each and every one of us as we're carefully searching your word, trying to understand it, and applying it to our lives. Father, I ask that you would be with me as I present your word. I ask that you would help to make my words clear and concise. I ask that you would give me the ability to handle your word properly and effectively so that it makes changes in our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30 today. Now, just so you're aware, a little bit of inside baseball here. My original plan for this series on Philippians was for us to spend four weeks in the book of Philippians. There's four chapters. I was going to spend four weeks. That was going to run us right into Christmas, have a couple of sermons on Christmas, and then we'd start the new year with something new. And here we are on week three, and we're going to finish chapter one. (laughs) So, needless to say, we're not going to finish the book in four weeks. We're not going to get it done by Christmas. That's okay. Um, I really tried hard this week. I sat down with my Bible and my, my computer, and I was like, okay, I'm a little bit behind. Let's get through the end of chapter one and all of chapter two, and we'll at least be caught up a little bit. Um, that's not going to happen. We're going to look at four verses today. So um, one, one of the things I want to kind of bring your attention to over the past year or so of sermons is if you've been paying attention in these different books that we've gone through, we've been talking about these different lenses and methods that we're using to read Scripture. Right, so when, 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 we, when we went back, if you can remember way back, we looked at the book of Genesis, and we looked at it through a, a Christ lens, through a lens of Jesus, and we looked at Genesis as everything pointing to Christ. When we looked at Exodus, we did the pyramid thing where we were looking at these different layers of the moral application and the spiritual application and the historical, and we kind of had this pyramid layer. When we looked at Matthew... We broke it down into these five major speeches, and we looked at how Matthew presented the life of Christ around these five speeches and this kingdom theme. We looked at Psalms, and we took this kind of experiential approach where we were appreciating them as poetry, and we weren't focused on the history. We weren't focused on any of that. We were just like, let's read poetry like poetry and enjoy it like a good song, like a good, like a good cake, good ice cream, right? And as we're, as we're getting into Philippians, what we're doing is we're pulling out the microscope. We're trying to go verse by verse, word by word, and we're really just trying to study this letter in the same way that a scientist might look at cells in a microscope. We're diving into what's going on in the mind of Paul, what's going on in the mind of Philippi. We're going to look at some of the original language. We're going to try and collect all of the data that we possibly can on this book and just kind of really pick it apart. And I, I was... I was thinking about this concept the other day, these different tools, the different methods, and the thought popped into my head that maybe you're thinking, maybe you're not, but which one's the right lens? Which one's the correct 
proper lens to read Scripture through. Um, this is something when we do our Bible studies on Tuesday nights that I highly encourage everyone to go to. Um, we'll, we'll get on a verse and we'll get stuck somewhere and somebody will inevitably say, well, what does it actually say? Meaning, like, what's the right answer as we're figuring out this question? And then someone would say, like, yeah, 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 that's nice that you think that there's this idea and this idea, but what does it actually say? What does it actually mean? And I want us to, if at all possible, try and break ourselves away from that mindset of wanting instant gratification in Scripture. That I just want to be able to read it once, understand it the very first time, I get it, I can move on to the next thing now, I've mastered this section of Scripture. That's an instant gratification look at Scripture. And I don't, I don't think that's how our attitude towards the Bible should be. Um, let me give you an example. So, as some of you hopefully are aware, I'm, I'm in school right now, I'm working on my, my degree in seminary, and one of the things you do when you're in school for a seminary degree is you write research papers. Oh. So about a year ago, I did this really big research paper on one verse in the book of Mark. And actually, what, what the research paper was, was it was a 10 or 12 page research paper on one word in one verse in the book of Mark. One little word, and I spent six months, I read hundreds of books and commentaries, I spent time examining the images of the actual Old Testament, or excuse me, New Testament manuscripts in the original Greek, I spent time looking at translations into the old Latin, I spent time looking at the history and how this one word was used in other parts of the Bible and around the world, I looked at the literary themes and the big grand structure of what Mark was trying to go for in his gospel. I spent time looking at examples of how this verse and this word and this verse might have been transmitted verbally before Mark even wrote it down. We can look through old, old um, inscriptions and get kind of a, maybe a little clue as to well, how was this account about Jesus being told before Mark even wrote it down? Because they would pass things on orally before Mark even sat and read it. Six months, pages and pages, hundreds of books, and when I got done, I still had not figured out what to do with this one word and this one word verse in Mark. Done all of that. And I got to the end, and I had to turn my paper in, because you've got to get it, you've got a due date. And my conclusion was... I don't know. I've studied and studied and read and read, and, and what am I supposed to do with this one word? And I was like, I don't know. And so a few months ago, I was thinking about this paper, and I was going back, and I reread what I had written, and I was looking at some of my sources. And finally, only about a month or two ago, I stopped and I said, you know, I think I'm about 90% certain how to understand this word in this one verse in Mark. Why am I telling you all this? Spent six months researching, wrote a paper, a year later, so this is 18 months, and I finally got to the point where I was like, I think I understand it. I think I've got a grasp on this one word and this one verse in Mark. Well, there's a lot more words in the Bible for us to spend doing that with. 
And so my hope as we go through this series, as we're reading through the Bible, my hope is for us to move beyond wanting to just know the answer right now and get into a point where we are so familiar with Scripture, backwards and forwards, and everything we can possibly know about it, that maybe, hopefully, one day we can feel comfortable with it. Like we know it, like we understand it, like we have a relationship with God's Word, rather than just wanting to just, nope, here's the answer, got it, put it on a test, move on. So as we go through this series, I want you to keep that in your mind. I want you to read through the passages that we're doing. Um, Go home and read them again and again and ask questions and look up a sermon of some other preacher and what he says about this passage of Scripture. And so that's what I want to try and do as best I can in 30 or 40 minutes here on a Sunday once a week is kind of give you the distillation of that just constantly being in the Word. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians 1.27. And just so we don't forget where we've been up until this point, in Philippians 1.27, a couple weeks ago we looked at the start of the church in Philippi in the book of Acts. We looked about how this is the first church where Paul is going into a non-Jewish area, Roman territory. We looked at how the church in Philippi was being formed in the middle of this big debate about circumcision. And so the big problem that we were talking about in Acts was, how do you keep a church together in that environment? How do you keep a church together when you're geographically distant, you're culturally distant, and there's dissension going on in the church? And then last week, we looked at Paul's introduction, the major themes. We looked at his imprisonment. And we looked at the fact that Paul was looking at the very real possibility that he might not get out of prison. I'm not sure which one I prefer, to live or to die. And he was looking at the fact that, like, I might die here in prison. And so what does that mean for the church in Philippi? How is Paul going to lift up this church and encourage them and give them what they need to continue on if, heaven forbid, he gets executed or dies of some disease or just ends up rotting in prison for the rest of his life. So I want you to keep those ideas in your mind as we look at these verses in Philippians. Verse 27, Paul says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. That first line, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is a, this is a word that Paul uses that's only found two times in the entire New Testament. Once here, once in the book of Acts. And what it literally means is act like a citizen or be a citizen worthy of the gospel. And that's a weird way to try and understand it. It doesn't come across in the English very well. But remember, Philippi was a leading city in Macedonia. It was the first church squarely in Roman territory, both geographically and culturally. Remember from Acts, in Philippi, they didn't even have enough Jewish males there to form a proper synagogue. Right? The limit was 10 Jewish males before you can even start a synagogue. And when they went there in Acts, 
There were not even enough Jews there to start a synagogue. That's why they were down by the river finding a place to pray. So Philippi was this extremely Roman city. What, let's think about what makes any place any more Roman than any other place, right? Asia Minor, that's all in the Roman Empire. Judea and Samaria, those are all in the Roman Empire. So what do I mean when I say Philippi was more Roman than any other city? Well, Israel was a part of the Roman Empire, but they were Roman-occupied territory. Culturally, they were not Roman. Politically, they were not Roman. In their attitudes and mindsets, they weren't loyal to Rome. They were simply ruled over by Rome. That's a difference. Think about up until a few years ago, um, the countries of Afghanistan and Iraq were controlled by the United States. We had a military presence there. For all intents and purposes, we owned those countries. Right? We oversaw their elections, we trained up their military and their police, we provided them with the bulk of their financial needs, we had soldiers there patrolling, keeping things in order. I mean, practically, that was American territory. I know on paper it wasn't, but we were there calling the shots in Afghanistan and Iraq. But nobody would ever fly to Iraq or Afghanistan while we were still occupying those territories and get off the plane and say, Ah, welcome to America. No, because it's not America. That's what Asia Minor was like. That's what Israel was like. They were Roman-controlled, but they weren't Roman. Philippi is a lot more like Cleveland, Ohio. You get off the boat in Philippi, and you're like, oh, yeah, we're in the heartland. Um, not only that, but... Philippi itself just was more loyal to Rome and, and Roman to the core than even other places that were true and proper, proper Roman cities. It was like a gung-ho, like it was like, when I think of America, right, I think of the Midwest. That's a place where you're like, this is America. There's fireworks and parades and like, Philipp that was Philippi. Um, it's like, I don't want to get political. I hate getting political. But, like, we all kind of know the quiet part out loud. There's some cities in our country that feel more American than others. Alliance, Nebraska is, like, small-town America. That's the kind of place that uh, Bruce Springsteen would sing a song about. Seattle, Washington, not so much. Or some little small town in Texas where all the stores shut down on Friday night for a football game. That's America. You just feel it to the core. That's the kind of place Philippi was. Obviously, the only other place that Paul ever even wrote to that was more Roman than Philippi was, there's a book, it's got the name Romans, right? Rome. I would say Rome was probably the most Roman city, but Philippi is like the Cleveland, Ohio of the Roman Empire. And so what Paul says here, act like a citizen. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Be citizen-like. What he's doing is he's pulling at those patriotic Roman heartstrings of the church in Philippi, and he's like, you know how you feel when you think about Rome, when you think about Caesar, and, and how proud you are? 
do the kinds of things that a Roman citizen would do, right? When you talk about what it is to be a Roman, there's certain ways you act, there's certain things you do. And Paul is saying, take that same attitude, that same patriotism that you feel, now apply it to Christ's kingdom. Be a citizen worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so I think about this because we live in this culture where, you know, most of us have a little bit of a patriotic streak to us. And I think, what would it be like if we took that same veracity that we feel for our country and we applied it to God's kingdom instead? Like, when I go to a sporting event, at least, you know, the kinds of sporting events that I go to, what do you do right before you play the game? You sing the national anthem. And you stand there and you put your hand over your heart. And if you're like me, you get a little bit emotional. There's a lot of history behind it. You get this sense of pride. I, I'll be honest, when the anthem plays, I get a little weepy every single time. Because there's just this innate, like, yeah. People died for this country. And I feel that. And, and what we should get here is, like, what would it be like if that was our attitude for Christ's kingdom? Like if we set off fireworks for Christ and had barbecues for Christ and we could just feel it deep down in our bones, I'm proud to be a Christian. Oh, wouldn't that be something? Paul says, be a, be a citizen. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent. Hey, remember, we talked from last week, Paul's in prison. He's discussing the sort of pros and cons of whether he's going to live or he's going to die in prison. And ultimately, Paul decides that he's confident that he's going to get out of prison. Because that's what God needs. God needs workers in the kingdom. And so Paul has this confidence. He's like, I'm getting out of here because I'm just so confident that I'm going to get out of prison and I'm going to build up Christ's church but here in verse 27 he says whether I come see you or whether I should remain absent I think what Paul is expressing here is no matter how confident he might be in his mind he knows that ultimately God's in control he knows that even though he's confident ultimately God is going to be the one who decides whether he lives or dies whether he goes to Philippi or not and so this whether I see you or whether I remain absent, we should understand this as Paul's kind of hinting at, like, I'm confident, I'm going to get out and come see you, but, you know, just in case God has other plans for me, here's my instructions. Whether I see you or should remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, and contending side by side for the gospel. Remember, just like we talked about before, Philippi is culturally separated from the rest of the church. It's geographically separated from a lot of the church. It was in this time with all this division. There were men from Judea, as Acts says, who wanted to force the Gentiles to be circumcised. And the big question was, what do we do with this church in Philippi? It's in a fragile position. 
These men from Judea could come and they could mess everything up and they're so far away and they're so culturally distant that these men from Judea could come and cause everyone to fall away, force them to be circumcised. And then Paul's like, well, all this work I put into this church, what are we going to do? And so we fast forward to the letter. Paul says, whether I see you or whether I don't, whether I get out of prison or I don't, here's another wrinkle to the fragility of the church in Philippi. How are we going to keep this church together without Paul? I don't think this was Paul's concern. I think Paul had enough faith in God that he knew that the church was going to be just fine. I think what we're seeing here is Paul's answering the church in Philippi's concerns. Paul, you're in prison. We're kind of worried. What are we going to do without you? You're our guy. You're the guy who started our church. You're the guy who first showed up. You're the guy who writes us letters all the time. You're the guy who... When we have a question, we write a letter to you, and now you're locked up in prison and you might get out. Like, heaven forbid, if you don't get out of prison, what are we going to do? And so Paul's instructions. Number one, act like a citizen. Act in a manner worthy of someone who is a citizen of heaven. So no matter what, whether I see you or whether I don't, I should hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Band together, be united. See the unity theme we're getting? We got a little bit earlier in chapter one. You want to keep a church from falling apart? You need to foster unity. You need to, as a church body, be able to make decisions together for the common good of the church. You need to be able to think and act as a group, as a unit, and not just individuals. And what is it that you need to be United around, it's the gospel. It's Christ. That's the thing that Paul, the glue that Paul wants to hold them together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Standing firm, one mind, one spirit, by contending side by side for the gospel. This is a really cool word that Paul uses, contending. This is another one that doesn't quite come across in our English. This is a sports metaphor. Contending as in in a contest together. If you the most like if you want to make it the most literal English translation to the point where it doesn't even make sense, you would say you are athleticing together or training as athletes together. Um they didn't necessarily have team sports in Rome, but the athletes who competed would train together, and there was this fellowship where they each wanted to make each other better. They each were on this, this brotherhood. We're athletes. And when you think about Roman culture, right, be like a citizen, bringing on that, like, what does it truly mean to be a Roman? You know what the Romans love more than anything else? Sports. They were, honestly, I think the Romans, if you look back, were probably more sports crazy than we are here. Like, that was their thing. Top of the list. For any good Roman citizen was chariot racing, by the way. That was their baseball. Like, you want to be a good Roman citizen, you either learn how to do chariot racing and you compete, or you go down to the amphitheater and you're going to watch some chariots race. 
Um, so yeah, so Paul's, Paul's drawing on this, this political, this national identity. He's drawing on their love of sports. And so when he says, compete together, act like athletes together, you've got to think that maybe chariot racing was probably what came to their mind. Obviously, there's the Roman sports. You think of the gladiator fights. Um, most of the time, for, except for a few exceptions, the gladiators in Rome were actually sleeve, slaves, not free men. We know that in the early church, the vast majority of Christians were slaves. Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ, so maybe that's what Paul's hitting on here. But the church was this place where slave and master, male and female, Jew and Gentile, poor and rich, could all come in one place and theme. This is, uh, if I can get it to come up on the screen, yeah. This is the, this is the theater in Philippi. If you have a passport and a plane ticket, you can actually go fly to Philippi and see the theater. Um, the Greeks built it. When the Greeks built it, they used it as a proper theater for plays and arts and theater. And the Romans rose to power. You know what they repurposed it for? Blood sport. Because that's, we're Romans. We want gladiator fights and, and animal fights and Roman boxing, right? Roman boxing is a lot more like UFC. It's like a, almost a fight to the death, but not quite. No holds barred. So here's the, this is the culture Philippi's in. Paul's using this imagery, this Roman patriotism, this love of sports, and he's repurposing all of that to get them to aim it toward Christ. It's a pep talk. You see the language Paul's using, you see it. It's a pep talk. It's a halftime speech. Paul says, come on, act like a true Roman would, but for Christ. Come on, act like you're defending the championship, but for Christ. Work together as a team, win the belt, win the prize, whatever it is, but for what? For the faith of the gospel. That's what team you're on. That's what allegiance you are pledging to. That is what you are united we standing around for the faith of the gospel. The word here, faith, gets used in a couple different ways in the New Testament. It's, sometimes we breeze through the word faith, but I want to impart on you just how rich the word faith is. Faith can mean faith like we think, like belief. I have believing in a thing. I have faith. Faith can also mean faithfulness, as in I have faith, I am being faithful, I am being loyal to whatever it is that I have faith in. And the term's also used to simply as a noun to describe the Christian faith, as in the Christian religion. Stand firm for the faith. We do that, right? We, we, we will talk about somebody and we'll say, oh yeah, Barbara so-and-so, she's of the faith. What we mean is, she is a Christian. She's on Team Jesus. And so I think what we're getting here is Paul is giving them this pep talk, and he's giving them this plea as they're standing in the theater, as they're standing in the arena, and he's encouraging them to be patriotic for the gospel. Contend together, play on the same team for the faith, for the gospel, for Team Christ. 
Be loyal to your team. Be loyal to Team Christ. Team Faith. He says, and, not, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign for their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. And again, here in verse 28, this intimidated word, it's the same kind of word you would use to describe horses getting spooked. To be startled, to be frightened, to be spooked a little bit. Like, I, I, the, the word I think of when you work with horses, it's spooked. Don't be spooked. We're seeing this chariot race imagery here. Paul says, you're in the arena, you're fighting for Christ, and he's mixing metaphors a little bit, and that's okay. Paul does that. He says, whether I come back or not, don't get startled by your opponents. Don't get spooked by those other horses. Don't get frightened when you see the other gladiator enter to the arena. And he's big and you're small. Every good, I love sports movies, by the way. Every good underdog sports movie, it's, it's required, it's in the contract. If you have an underdog sports movie, there is going to be a scene where the team that you're rooting for goes in for the championship game, or maybe it's the first game of the playoffs, and their opponents walk in. Every good sports movie, you've been watching this team and you've been rooting for them and they're the rags to riches underdog story and they finally think they're ready for the big game and then the opponent walks in and you're like, uh-oh. Karate Kid, you know, you're cheering for, uh, what was his name, Caruso? What's, eh. You're cheering for him and then you see his opponent from the, the other karate school and you're like, ooh, this guy looks tough. Ooh, his sensei looks really mean. He hasn't learned the crane thing yet. I'm a little bit nervous. I like sports movies, sorry. Paul's saying, don't be afraid of those guys. They might look like giants, and you feel like a grasshopper. Remember Deuteronomy? We can't go into the land. They look like giants, and we look like grasshoppers. And Paul's, this is the point in which Paul, Coach Paul, is pulling the church in Philippi aside, and he's like, don't worry about those guys. You guys need to work together as a team just like we practiced. You're going to beat them. It's a sign of their destruction and a sign of your salvation. What is it? What is the sign exactly of their destruction and your salvation? It's their unity. That's what he was just talking about. Work together. Be like a team one spirit, one mind, contending side by side. And don't be afraid of those guys because your unity is a sign from God. You will win. We don't actually know who Paul's, or excuse me, who. We don't actually know who their opponents were, interestingly enough. We don't know if he's talking about the Judaizers, maybe. We don't know if he's talking about people inside the church who are trying to disrupt things from the inside out or if it was people outside the church. We don't even know if Paul maybe was referencing the true enemy that we read about in Ephesians 6, the spiritual forces of the unseen realm. In some regard, it doesn't matter who specifically that we're talking about. If God wanted us to know exactly who the enemies are, he would have told us. But the point 
that we need to understand is that there's something or someone who's opposing them. And Paul in his letter is painting the picture of them in the arena ready to fight. Whoever or whatever it is. And notice, through all of this, is never once does Paul say, you know, you don't actually have to fight this fight. It's okay if you walk away from this fight. It's okay if you don't stand firm, if you just kind of back down a little bit. The way Paul phrases it here, you're already in the arena. They're already behind the chariot. They're already got their Roman boxing gloves on. They're already gearing up to face the lion, whatever it is. And your only hope, you're already under attack, and your only hope is to remain united in Christ. There is no other option. There is no other don't fight this fight. That's the kind of fight we're in. The spiritual fight that we go through, the cultural fight that we go through, we're in the arena already. It's not like we really have a choice. Verse 20 says, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. I'm going to read that one more time, and I want you to think about that. It has been granted to you, given to you, graced to you. God has given you this gift, what? To believe in Christ and also to suffer for him. Again, to believe, that's that same word, faith, to have faith in Christ, to be loyal to Christ. Not only that, but you have been given the pleasure of suffering for Christ. I want to be perfectly clear about what Paul is saying here. When we're fighting our spiritual battles, when we're fighting our cultural battles, Paul is saying suffering for Christ is not just a product of your circumstances. It's not something that just happens to you that you have to endure. Suffering for Christ is not just a bad thing that happens that you're just going to have to deal with. It is something that God has granted to you. It is a privilege and an honor, like any proper Roman citizen would feel like. It is a privilege and an honor to stand in this arena and suffer for Christ. What would it be like if that was our mindset? I'm proud to suffer for Christ. In the same kind of pride that I feel when I watch my favorite team or when I hear the national anthem play, now I'm suffering for Christ and I've got tears rolling up in my eyes. He says, since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. This is more sports imagery, by the way. Contest, the word sometimes translated as race, you're running the same race. It's a, it's a sports contest, athletic contest. Here I think we're getting that combat imagery. Fighting the lion, fighting the bare knuckle brawl fist fight. And Paul says, I'm fighting the same spiritual opponents in martial combat that you are. And recognize that you're going to go through that same fight. 
you're going to suffer for Christ. Um, quick side note, would somebody be willing to uh, send a message down to Virginia and our kids and let them know that we're about ready to wrap up? Five-minute warning. What do I make of all this? This word picture Paul is painting, standing in the arena, suffering for Christ. I think we can relate to the church in Philippi in a lot of ways. We, we understand what it means to be loyal to our country. We watch the Olympics every four years and people get up and they cheer for somebody that they've never met before in a sport that they would never watch otherwise, but we're proud of them. You know why? Because they got that American flag on their jersey. So go curling. I, I don't know. Nobody ever watches curling outside the Olympics, but when the Olympics happens, it's all of a sudden a big deal and we're so proud of our American curlers. We've got that connection with them because of that flag they wear on their jersey. And if you're not into Olympics, if that metaphor doesn't hit home for you, let's frame it this way. Every Saturday in the fall in Nebraska, it's like red and white Husker gear everywhere. Talk about loyal. Nebraska Husker fans are the most loyal fans I've ever seen in my life. When's the last time they had a winning record? When I, okay, easy, sorry, 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 no, there. I'm, I'm, I've been big on Nebraska volleyball, by the way, watching those girls, yeah. When I first moved to this state, it took me at least a couple of weeks before I even realized that the official state flag was not that big red N flag. Like, I thought that was the state flag, and it took me like two weeks before I was like, oh, it's that weird little blue sower thing. Like, oh, I see the red N Nebraska flag way more than I see the state flag. Highly disappointing, by the way. I like the Husker flag. It looks a lot cooler, but write a letter to your congressman. I don't know. The point is we understand this idea of loyalty. We understand this idea of patriotism. This, it's almost irrational, the pride that we get when we rally together under this common cause. Paul's saying take that same pride, that same attitude, now apply it to the faith. That same team unity we feel for our Olympic swimmers and whatever else. Now apply it to other Christians. Cheer on other Christians the same way you cheer for the, the Husker girls volleyball team. Like, you're excited for them. Train with them. Build them up in the same way that that Olympic coach does for that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be able to win on the world stage. Because you're encountering the same conflict you saw me face. And by extension, you are encountering the same conflict that you've seen other Christians around the world face day in and day out. The struggle with sin, the struggle with the culture, the struggle with the internal forces and the external forces. And we're all on the same team. We're all running the same race. And that is the attitude we should have toward one another. We should stand united for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we just, we thank you for the opportunity we get to, to be on your team. We thank you for the, the honor it is to be able to suffer for you. God, as we go out 
into the world this week. We ask that you would help us to train to win for Christ. We ask that you would help us to sharpen our swords, to be in your word, to be equipped to fight the same battles that Christians have been fighting for centuries. We ask that you would help us to act like good, proper citizens of heaven and struggle together and fight together, united for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.